0: Welcome to episode four of the Crafting Code podcast, where we discuss the importance of doing the right thing at the right time and with the right tools. My name is Alan Stewart, I'm a software architect, and lately I've been thinking about the competing concerns of data
1: aggregation and access control. I'm Dave Adsit, I am a CTO, and this week I've been thinking a lot about scaling teams and KPIs.
2: I'm Matt Baker, software architect, architect. <laughs> Lately, I've been implementing
0: the Kafka Wire protocol. For our episode today, we're going to be talking about effective teams. To kick things off, Dave, Matt, what does it mean for a team to be effective?
1: So, man, that question goes deep. Cuts deep. <laughs> yeah. It... Uh an effective team actually gets something done that is useful.
2: I, I would add to that they consistently get something done that is useful yeah, day over day and week over week.
0: Yeah, I went and looked up a definition for effective. And in the dictionary, it said something's effective if it is adequate to accomplish a purpose, producing the intended or expected result. Uh, and I think about that in terms of you know value to expense. If a team is, you know, they deliver something and it works, but it was super expensive, like 10 times more expensive than maybe it ought to have been, then, then no, that wasn't very effective. Or if they take a really long time to do something that might be ineffective, just depending on are, are they delivering value back to the business, uh, which gets back to some of the, the uh, key tenets of the software craftsmanship manifesto that we often talk about, you know, delivering value and, and making sure that we're doing what the customer or employer needs us to do.
2: I like that the, the definition starts with adequate to accomplish. And it's interesting for me right now to contrast that with like amazing best tool ever. Uh, so adequate to accomplish to me sounds like uh, like be a fan of good enough. If it wh- whatever causes you to expend the least amount of effort might be the the right choice here. I don't know. I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say. What I'm attracted to though is this idea that it's like, hey, it's just good enough to accomplish the purpose. That's effective.
1: Well, and I think uh, I I'm drawn to something along along those lines as well, which is the idea that it's not about being busy. It's about getting things done. It's Adequate to purpose. So get something done, deliver it, then do the next thing, then do the next thing. And so to me, effective teams are teams that are delivering at a regular cadence. You said it at the beginning, Matt. It, they're delivering today, tomorrow, next week, the week after, et cetera, right? A team can be very busy and very ineffective, or they can be very effective and appear to be less busy.
0: Yeah, that consistency is an important aspect of being effective uh, and I'm I'm reminded of the phrase, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good or good enough. An effective team is going to make sure that they do good enough, right? They don't want to be sloppy. They don't want the quality of the product to suffer but they also aren't going to be perpetually gold plating or, or navel gazing at their code and trying to figure out what it is that they are delivering. But they understand we, we need to be on that treadmill of delivering value all the time.
1: For my teams, I like to think we all get paid on a regular cadence and I expect to see value on a regular cadence. Back in the deep, dark recesses of my past, I worked on a project that had an annual release cycle I never saw it released before I left the team. I missed the cycle. And then I left 11 months later because I had a job where I actually had the hope of getting something done and delivering some value to someone.
2: How did it turn out?
1: The the team that I left or the team that I went to?
2: The that you went to.
1: Oh, very well. We delivered a lot of things. It probably wasn't the most effective team I've ever been on because some of the things that we delivered were bugs and defects and outages and (laughs) changing code directly on production servers. But, you know, we were learning, or at least I was.
2: (laughs) Yeah. One one thing that sticks out to me on the annual month cycle, I too have uh, lived in that world uh, and we were shipping on cds at the time too That was um we would release once or twice a year depending on um how much work we actually got done but something that stuck out to me those release cycles introduce work that wouldn't be there otherwise and you can get rid of that additional work by by shortening those release cycles and i don't know if that's necessarily true now that i'm thinking about it in the cd world but i know now that like the overhead necessary to wait a year to ship some software uh, would be hard to justify for me instead of just uh, you know shipping consistently. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what are some of the things that we've seen effective teams do? If these effective teams are going out, they're delivering value consistently. They're doing good quality code. They're understanding the needs of the customer. What are what are the things that make them effective as far as practices or? habits or just the day-to-day coding process.
1: Well, so for for groups of people one of the things that I think is essential is having some kind of vision or goal or alignment that you're working towards. If you're just wandering around being busy, you're not going to be very effective. But if everybody knows what it is you're trying to do, you can get a lot done. So, you know, I think of things like oh, I don't even know how many times I've done smart goals for different companies. And I don't even know how many times they've given a different definition of smart for those smart goals, depending on what the leadership de jour was particularly worried about. But the best kind of smart goals, I think, are OKRs, which you know you've got your objective and everybody knows it. I say that singularly. You have got your objective. Don't have a collection of them. Have something that everyone knows about. Yeah, I like that.
0: The vision aspect makes me think about some teams that I've seen where they weren't really delivering the value that the business needed. If you don't understand your purpose and how you fit in with the business, then it's really easy to kind of invent your own purpose. Sometimes teams will become less effective through creating their own uh, identity around the thing that it is that they do. So rather than what the company needs, it's like, oh, well, we are team X and we do X. And so we deliver X and they might be really good at continuous delivery or at least frequent delivery. They're getting code and features out the door and they're improving their spot, but it's a local optima. There's the problem in computer science of uh, sometimes it's called hill climbing, where if you're on a hill, you know that you can go up, you can keep improving. You go up, up, up and get to the top. But then how do you know if you're on the highest hill? or you're just on the top of a little hill and behind you is the big old mountain that you wanted to be on, but you can't see it.
1: Yeah. I've seen teams fall for that trap. We do X, we will maximize X. Well, but a little bit of X is good and a lot of X is expensive and we would have been satisfied with a little bit of X.
2: Sometimes I wonder what influence like the organization has on this. Like, I, I think it's true that there's some teams that don't actively seek feedback. And I, that's, a, I think, a critical thing here. If they're not constantly asserting that they're serving their customer, then, you know, all it takes is a change in their customer that they don't detect. And now they're drifting. And I, I think that depending on how well you're connected to that feedback, uh, that can have an impact on it. There's, it's interesting for me to think uh, about teams I've been on that have done this. I've done this myself. Absolutely. I've, gotten, I've fallen into this trap. And then there's also external factors to the team that can cause this like turning inward to occur where
0: the team just stops listening mm-hmm. to, to feedback externally. For sure. There's certainly a leadership component that is required here where somebody can come back and give feedback to the team and say, this is what we need you to do. Because if you have ineffective leadership, then it's really hard for them, for the members of the team to figure out how their work connects back to the company's objective or strategy or whatever it is they're trying to do. But yeah, there's also a component of did the members of the team spend the time that was needed? Did they put forth some effort? So that they can understand what it is that they should be doing rather than just kind of blindly shipping the next thing, the next idea that they had, regardless of whether it was the right thing to build.
1: Most of the people that I've worked with have wanted to make a positive impact. That's been something that's been motivating to, you know, the professionals that I've worked with in my career. If you don't have a vision about how the thing you do affects the business that you are in, You know, if you can't tie it back, then you can find impact by building a custom framework to maximize the thing that your team does. And then polishing that framework and making it the best one and then taking time to open source it and do all the extra work necessary for that because you feel like you're at least you're making an impact to the community around you. Or, you know, maybe you say, we're the team that's going to learn this new programming paradigm or language, and we're going to be really good at it because at some point it's going to matter. It's easy to lose sight of how your actions are impacting the business. If you don't have that vision and you're not creating that alignment around, you know, the purpose of the organization, whatever scale that organization is. I agree.
2: I agree, and I think there's something with execution here too. That um, you'd mentioned, you know, we're going to build this big new thing, and we're going to do A, B, C, X, Y, and Z, and it'll be great. And I think even that, like, I'm willing to accept that that could be possible. That could be an okay thing for the business, assuming they execute it a little bit at a time, right? Like, part and parcel with that kind of ambition usually seems to come like this whole upending of the current structure, where it's like throw everything out and go again, and we're just going to build a whole new one. And it's like, well. Why don't you take like 5% of what's now and, and try out your idea there? And, and maybe, um, you know, you could get to the same end, but you don't drive the
1: company off the cliff in the process. I, I think that iteration is one of the things that defines an effective team. I've read that, you know, in experiments where they have people try to do the best version of X versus do them a whole bunch of them. Like there's one, one example of like uh, clay pots pottery class in a college where you get one point per pot you complete. You get 300 points if you make the best pot. And then they randomize who gets which assignment. And the people who make 300 pots always make the best pot as well. One of the people who makes the 300 pots because practice, it brings improvement, right? And so working in small steps, iterating, I think is something that is essential for an effective team for a couple of reasons. First, it allows you to get yourself unstuck. You don't have to spend months or eons designing the perfect solution because you accept upfront, I'm going to deliver a solution and then I'm going to deliver a better solution. And then I'm going to deliver a better solution. And I'll probably do that five or six times. So it's okay that the first one is not going to be great because I know that going in, it's my draft. The first one I put out there is my draft. And then it's going to just keep getting better. You know, one of the things that happens to us though, is that We start to get too hung up in our work. I have a a workshop that I have done a few times where I make everyone in the room say, I am not my code until I hear like 95% (laughs) of them say it. And it's really hard for the first two or three people to say it, but pretty soon everybody's like, yeah, I'm not my code. I'm better than that. I I have intrinsic value whether or not my code has bugs or not, but I think that there's some, there's some value in creating like a collaborative space where we have like shared responsibility because then it's okay if the code isn't perfect and the design isn't perfect and the delivery isn't perfect. What do you guys think?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Again, it's the perfect being the enemy of the good, right? It's like, it's okay for it to not be the best thing ever. When you're starting out as long as you can keep iterating and practicing and progressing it reminds me a lot of this idea of are you doing project work versus product work and it go- and it depends on what your company objective is again going back to that vision because there are some places that where they are project shops and you know doing really high quality and iteration on a thing may not be what actually brings in money for the company They might be ready and willing to, you know, trot out their salespeople with their Cheshire cat smile to say, that's called a change request and it's going to cost you. (laughs) So, so in those cases, you know, it's, it's something else, but the product mindset, the product mindset gets you away from that just like menial task point of view where it's like, okay, here is the thing. Just get it done, get it to working as soon as you can. And instead, we're thinking about it in terms of let's iterate and progressively deliver value and improve it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, both the code, but also the team. You're improving those things as you go because you've got the long-term strategy of this is a thing that we're going to keep around and we're going to support and sustain, not just build it once and done. Yeah.
2: Something you said about, um, salespeople going out and, you know, doing the change request maneuver. I think you're right. And I, I think that sometimes this has been a hard pill for me to swallow in my career that, ah, crap, like we're no longer in the business of producing like the best product. Like we're in the business of like knocking down these deals, you know? And, and I know I found myself there before in my career, uh, uh companies grow and change, you know? And, um, that's a hard one to reconcile with, but I think it's right. And I think it comes back to what we said at the beginning, talking about the importance of doing the right thing at the right time with the right tools. Like a a thing that's on the table for consideration is the robustness and the like, you know, longevity of your code and your design. I don't like that and you know all
0: the time. <laughs> but but it's true. Yeah, and and knowing where you fit in with the kind of work that you're doing, right? I tend to do a lot of web development and backend APIs and databases and, you know, web 2.0 kind of stuff, but not everybody's in that business. And and some of those businesses are, are different and they have a different objective for delivering value. Yeah.
2: I worked on one project for a while where we delivered pretty custom solutions using, um, <laughs> it was script for a while. And then eventually we got uh, some .NET scripting in there, but we wrote some pretty big things in VB script, (laughs) like big as in footprint, you know, not big as in functionality. And, and looking back, I'm like, what in the hell, (laughs) but, but we got the job done and we made the company, the money. I just, uh, uh, it was
0: not pretty all the time. (laughs) Yeah. One of the other practices that I find really helps teams be effective is to collaborate. And there's a a number of different forms of collaboration. And over time, I'm finding that more collaboration is better. Pull requests were a lot better than before I did pull requests and had a you know a, a good way of doing code reviews but pair programming was better than that uh, mob programming has been kind of my go to for the last few years of let's get together because when we collaborate we get a bunch of people thinking about the problem very few of these problems are let's let's just slam this out as quick as we can and who's the fastest typer and can everybody be typing you know in parallel that's very rarely the thing that is needed in a lot of software development. Uh, but rather, what's needed is people helping each other and collaborating to understand what it is that we need to do. And can we write code that is clear enough that the other members of the team also understand it, that we can make that progress? There have been so many times in my career when I have found myself writing code and getting to the point where it's like, okay, now it's finally working. This is it. This is perfect. This is great. And then as soon as I show it to somebody else, they're like, oh, well, but it doesn't do the thing that we needed (laughs) because, you know, somewhere along the way I lost track of it. Uh, Even if I understood it pretty well going into it, it's like, oh, did you remember X or Y or Z? Because that changes what it is that you need to do.
1: When we talk about collaboration, you and I met, oh, half dozen years ago, maybe a little bit more, Alan. And when we first worked together, One of the things that you would often hear me say, whether you remember or not, is that pair programming is the best way I know to improve your team and test driven development is the best way I know to improve your code base. Since then, I've learned there may in fact be even some better ways and I may have been taught them by you in those early days when we were first working together. You know what I'm talking about? When your team decided to abscond with two 80-inch 4K TVs and hook up your computer to them and form the very first mobbing station in our company. I do know about that.
2: You know, I just as we go into this conversation, just for context, I want to say I worked on this team and that was... Easily the most productive team I've ever worked on uh, when, when I worked, I worked on the team with Alan. And uh, so Alan, please talk more about it, but I want to say that because it,
1: it, it's a, it was a great team. Would, would you say it was effective?
0: Absolutely. Oh, it was definitely effective. I don't know that I can claim credit for everything that you said there, because a lot of that was still new to me uh, at the time as well, but uh, we discovered some things together and it was
1: great. Well, and I was certainly skeptical. I was like pairing. That's enough. We have achieved <laughs> collaboration. We don't need to do more than pairing. And yet, maybe we do.
0: Yeah,
2: I don't always write code with other people. You know, sometimes I, I, or oftentimes I code by myself, but I, I do feel that I consistently write the best code when I collaborate with other people.
1: There's just too much. Uh, I think that one of you said, said it right when you said that it, typing is not the bottleneck. That's something that's stuck in my head since I heard J.B. Rainsberger say it years ago. Typing is not the bottleneck in delivering high quality software. Typing faster does not make you more effective. Like if typing is the bottleneck, you are not a very good typist and that's okay because ideally you're collaborating with somebody who might be a little bit better. Uh, I used to tell people when they were hesitant to pair program, I was like, every member of the team knows something that you don't. It might be a shortcut key. It might be like the way they do command line. It might be just like they learned one simple little trick to do something that is kind of repetitive and you've just kind of gotten used to. Everybody on the team knows something. And some of them, what they know is the internals of database design and distributed system consensus algorithms. And you may not know those things, at least not as well. Yeah, on that team that you mentioned before, uh there were a couple different people with some really
0: great skill sets that I relied on heavily.
1: You know, I've I've seen I've seen teams do like we're going to split the front end from the back end so that we can be for, more focused and more effective, and I just it doesn't it doesn't typically work. There may be contexts in which it does, and I could probably name a few if I were pressed but like getting a good front-end developer and a good back-end developer to sit down and write some code together to build a feature, so powerful, so effective. It really
0: is. Yeah, there's a lot that we could go into as far as collaboration and uh, the many benefits of it. But I think the main thing that I would wanna say at this juncture is echoing what Matt said about the effectiveness of it. At the surface, it really can look not productive you know, uh, th- that team with the big 80 inch TVs, it could be easy to go in there and and just look at what they're doing. And on the surface, it's, well, they're all just staring at the TV and and one person is typing. Well, That doesn't seem very effective at all. What if two people were typing? Wouldn't that be better? What if all the people were typing? But the problem is that then you don't get that collaboration and sharing, but you introduce other problems instead. It's like, oh, well, I wanted to do it like this and you wanted to do it like that. And if we're both coding independently, then we're gonna see both of those things appear in the code and we'll have to reconcile it at some point. We're both going to change the same file at some point and then we'll have a merge conflict. We're both going to do something that makes it harder for us to integrate. And then suddenly we're finding ourselves being less effective, but more busy. It looks bad, To see all the people just sitting there looking around at the, at the TV screen. But once you stop and see, well, what is it that actually is happening there and the communication, the speed with which they find little bugs. And it's all of these like pitfalls that they're not falling in that brings you that effectiveness and speed.
1: It's really hard to see the thing that didn't happen. It's hard to see the bug that wasn't shipped to production.
2: I wonder if, and th- I'm way out on a limb here. I don't have anything to back this up, but I wonder if there's some correlation between teams splitting, like on the backend, front end, and the size of the code base. And I'm thinking about this in the context of like all code is a liability, so uh, it you know you're 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 incentivized to keep that code base small. And I wonder if splitting into backend and front end makes for bigger code bases for any number of reasons, including uh, Alan, what you mentioned, you know, different design constructs. Uh, I have to imagine that two design patterns shoved into a code base make it bigger than if it were just one. Well, I'm speaking very generally, but like in that, sense, it makes sense to me right
1: now. Uh, well, I think that I think that you are onto something there. If you don't know how someone's going to use your code, like if you're writing the the API or the back end, and you don't know how the front end is going to consume it, you have to write more generic or more optionality or just more features in the hopes that you will meet the need because you're not like we talk about going out and collaborating with our, our customers and our users and finding out what they need. But sometimes we don't want to do that with the people in our own group. (laughs) Right. I, I could write six extra APIs or I could go talk to that front end guy. Guess what I'm doing? Seven extra API calls just in case. Talking (laughs) with people is the worst. People,
2: man. One thing about mobbing that sticks out to me, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like um, practices that are hard to swallow. And I think that if I were, I can sympathize with a leader who might see mob programming and think, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not okay with that. I, I, I would see five engineers at one computer and I would think, well, that's one fifth of the, the output. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of one of those situations where maybe the real answer is, hey, just go try it like just go experience it for a little while because it's not going to be what you think. I'm pretty confident in saying that.
1: Well, yeah, I think that you're right that go try it and see, especially go try it and see if you have someone who's got enough experience to help guide away from some of the pitfalls that you fall into when you're doing early collaboration. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the other things that we as an industry suffer from, and I don't really want to go too far down this tangent, but we have a real lack of understanding and professionalism around our industry, right? Preach, Dave. Preach. I want to hear it. (laughs) I think anybody who is a manager, director, VP, C, whatever, if you are responsible for guiding a team of software engineers and you don't understand the fundamentals of system design and delivery and how to make that effective, you are going to fail. Go read, I mean, at the very least, go read your Goldrack. Go read Theory of Constraints. Go learn about flow. Go learn about systems. Go learn about how we can create an effective system of delivery. Because if you're not doing that, you are holding back the, the capacity of your software development team. It is not easy to be a software engineering leader. You don't just get to be a leader or a manager, or whatever you call it in your organization, because you're the guy who's been there the longest and you're the best coder. I'll tell you one thing. If I'm going in for surgery, I want the best surgeon who's doing surgery on a regular basis. I don't want the surgeon who became a hospital administrator and just has some free time. So he's going to come swing by and pull out my appendix for me.
2: I agree. I, in fact, I was just talking about this online today, coincidentally. Right now, I'm wondering, the more you don't know about software engineering, the more you need to be willing to rely on the, the wisdom of the people on your team. I'm, I'm not ready to say personally that you have to have been an engineer to be a great engineering leader, but it certainly helps. And I think the more that you're out of your depth technically, the more you need to just be willing to say, well, I trust I trust what my team says, you know, come like uh, hell or high water, I guess. And I, I don't know another way to navigate it because it's, it's pretty hard to be on one of those teams where you know that you've spent a career doing, and I, this isn't, I think this is just an objective statement to say, you know, you've spent a career doing something and you know, the person leading you hasn't. And when you start to watch them walk into things that you've walked into a number of times, or you feel like you, you recognize that can be a hard spot if you can't like bend their ear to, to listen to you for a minute. It can be frustrating and just kind of like uh, demotivating at times.
1: Yeah, 100%, 100%. Which is part of why I think it's important for us to have a collection of practices that have been validated and vetted in the industry across a lot of contexts, which isn't to say that anything becomes context-free, right? Right. There are, there are times when any one of our practices is the wrong thing to do. No matter how good it is in most situations, it might not be the right thing right now for this problem.
2: I want to say that like five times in a row. Can we just edit that? Just repeat, repeat, repeat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a bunch of basic practices that we have developed as, a, as a, an industry. Like I think they all come back to earlier concepts too. Larry Wall, the Python guy, is that right? He said that one, the three virtues of the programmer are laziness, hubris, and the third one. I always get hung up on laziness, right? Like remembering three things is hard, <laughs> but being lazy. It was Perl. It was Perl, not Python. Oh, right. Executable line noise. So
2: I had mm-hmm. so, a duck, duck, do it actually. (laughs) Ah, So
1: you want your computer to do stuff that's dumb and pointless and repetitive. Like don't waste your brain thinking about the deploy script. Use your brain to think about solving the business problem. Find the user and solve their problem. The rest of it is just like an exercise for the user, right? It's like an exercise for the reader. You want to give that person, you want to focus on that problem for that person and remembering the manual steps to execute, to do your testing or to do your deploy. That's nonsense. Make a computer do it. Don't let the computer be lazy. You be lazy.
0: Yeah. Automation is definitely one of those important practices. And to your statement earlier, I think it's one of those ones that has been well tested in many different contexts where we say, look, if you want to be an effective team, you need to automate some stuff. And if you're going to start automating, the first place I would point anybody at is testing. Mm -hmm. Get some automated tests because you're going to need it. You need to know that your code is doing the right thing. And as your system grows, it gets so painful to make sure that everything still works. You haven't broken something along the way because you were making another change for another reason.
2: Yeah, I would be impressed to meet a team that is not testing. <laughs> I I know some teams are still not automated testing, but if if there was a saying I heard in I think it was like 2018 I saw on Twitter, uh it's 2018, there's no longer an excuse to not do TDD. And if if testing is a prerequisite to TDD, then boy we're
0: <laughs> we're a little
2: late if we haven't adopted testing yet. <laughs> yeah, for sure
0: and you know there's other things to automate as well right um your continuous integration uh, which oftentimes is going to be running those tests and your deployment scripts uh, we've talked about this in prior episodes but y- you don't want to get to the point where it's time to deploy to production did you remember that one important step uh oh, whoops i know <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, Should we share some like war scars? I've deleted a whole customer's database trying to deploy live on the server, ran a bad SQL query.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: One of the guys that I worked with could not figure out which database the web server was connecting to. And so he just did a print line and he printed it right to the screen. The database connection string, that is. It would read it out of settings and print it to the screen on a web server. And it ran that way for about four hours.
2: While he was debugging. Well, cause but... he had
1: figured out what, what database it was, but then he had to go solve that problem. I forgot to go back and edit this, the web server in the production environment and remove it. A lot of things go bad when we're doing deploys. One of the things that I think is interesting is we talk a lot about continuous integration. And that meant a lot more to me when I was working on teams that were pairing or working on branches, because like you had to integrate your code regularly, early and often, as we would say. Yeah. And now I wonder, what has continuous integration come to mean for us? Oh yeah. Because if a team is mobbing, what are they integrating with?
0: Well, and I think that that's one of the key concepts there is that we go back to the idea of, well, what is continuous integration in the first place? It's not about having you know a Jenkins or a Bamboo or a Azure DevOps or Azure Pipelines or whatever it is that you're using to build and deploy. Those are CI tools. They're things that help you to do continuous integration. But continuous integration itself is just, did you integrate that code? Are there branches of code out there? Whether they're named Git branches, or it's just that thing that somebody's starting to type over in the corner that's different from what you're doing on your machine. And so yeah, if, if if you're mob programming and everybody's working on the same machine, then you are continuously integrating.
1: So would you say that if you were pair programming or using branches or pull requests or whatever, you're really doing continual integration every once in a while, hopefully often you integrate, but if you want to really be continuously integrated, you are going to be mob programming. Maybe, I mean, that's one of those
0: things. Like when does stream processing become batch processing? right? It's like, oh, well, or vice versa. It's like, well, how, how often are you doing it? And then that, that gives you an answer. There are a lot of cases where pair programming is plenty sufficient, but then there's other cases where it's not because you don't integrate often enough based on the types of changes that are happening to your code base. And and you can see the artifacts of that with things like merge conflicts. That's a good indication that probably you didn't integrate continuously enough to avoid a problem.
1: Batch was too large.
2: Yeah, I wonder too if there's a, if you would notice a size of the merge conflict, maybe correlated to the, the degree of the the delta, you know, like the bigger it gets, the bigger your merge commits gets, maybe that's an indicator, hey, your lack of integration is really starting to, to impact us.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Regarding automated testing, Matt, you talked about TDD test-driven development and one of the things that I think is a really effective practice for teams is TDD because not because of the automated testing that happens more and more I find that that's more like a byproduct of something more important which has to do with fast feedback while you're writing the code you make some changes and you're getting fast feedback you say okay great you know I made this change and it worked I made this change and all the tests fail and I make this change and they pass or no, they're really now even more failing. Let's pull the cord and, and start over on, on that work. But then there's also that design aspect. When you write with tests in mind, then it changes how you write your code to the point where when I was first learning how to unit test, there were so many bits of code that just seemed impossible. How did people even unit test? Like this is ridiculous because There's these huge setups for classes or it's integrated right into the UI and there's not a hook. There's not a way to get into testing what it is I want to test. And then I learned that there's other ways to design classes that make it easier to test. And if you start with testing first, that changes the way that you do your design. And it oftentimes leads you into some really beneficial practices you accidentally run into concepts around polymorphism and like hexagonal architectures and things like that, where even if you didn't know about that concept, you're brushing into it because the tests are pushing
1: you in that direction. When I was first learning testing, there there were often conversations that would go along the lines of, oh yeah, well, how do you test drive a class like this? And the response is, you don't, get a class like that when you test drive your code probably for the best. <laughs> uh.
2: <laughs> I think it's a ton of fun to take a legacy code base or uh well let's accept for a minute that legacy code is code without tests. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it's fun to take a legacy code base of, of like a sufficient size and try and test a class. Because it starts to become such a critique of the design, and it shows you all the ways in which you're coupled, and and your compadre there saying, "How would you test this class?" is, it's really kind of an indictment of his own design. If we're being real, because, (laughs) hundred percent, I hundred percent agree with that. You know, it's all coupled up. Sometimes it
1: was me saying it too. Yeah, so we're clear. <laughs> sure, sure.
2: And uh, but but I think it's such a great way to just sit down and 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 what a great way to start testing or even start doing TDD. Like, can we just test this one function? You know, in this whole release that we're about to do, these twenty sprints. Can I test one function, and just try that? You know, maybe that's a good intro into it. I don't know, but it it, it it's so revealing. Uh, Alan, I know you talk about it more as design than development. I totally agree with you because I think it just starts to reflect back to you, your design and the tightest of feedback loops.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, and, and that was one of the things you said earlier, Alan, is like you would work on code and sometimes you'd lose the thread and you'd end up implementing something that didn't actually matter yep. or wasn't actually what was needed anyway. It's really hard to do that when you start with TDD because you've written down, Here's my unit test and it describes my functionality. This is what I needed to do. Oh, well, I'll just make it do that. And it gets like so easy. You're like, this is easy. Anyone could do it. And then you realize after a couple of weeks or a few iterations or whatever, that you've built a pretty substantial and complex system or component in a system or whatever, right? At no point were you like, that was so amazingly hard. I can't believe that I figured out how to do it with my convoluted, multi-inheritance design.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it's even simpler than losing the thread of what you were trying to do. Sometimes it's just, oh, I++, not I-minus-minus. And in the olden days of my career, right, I would write up a whole thing. Okay, I've been coding for a few hours now. I'm going to run it and see if it works. 45 minutes ago, I did I-minus-minus that should have been I++ or i minus equals two or something it's just like oh yeah and those bugs when you're running it from end to end from the user experience or something like that super hard to figure out why is this not working yeah man but when you're doing it in a unit test as part of a tdd flow it's like oh derp (laughs) i could see right and right away (laughs) That's not going to work and why
1: see I introduced the failure in the last 45 seconds. What was I doing 45 seconds ago? It's
0: a lot easier to
2: remember
1: than 45 <laughs> minutes ago. I can
0: tell you that.
2: Get reset hard. Doesn't matter. Just reset.
1: <laughs> I uh, don't know. Get reset hard. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, Matt. Get reset hard more often. Like, absolutely.
0: Especially when your boss came over and, oh, hey, can you answer that email? And you got distracted by something else. And yeah.
2: maybe <laughs> you know what we should do? We should always get reset hard when that happens, and we should send like an uh, wasted inventory statement to our
1: bosses. <laughs> <laughs> These are the <laughs> hey. Let's not, hey, one of us is a boss and I don't, I don't actually, I think all of us have reports at this point. I meant what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, uh, fair.
2: <laughs> I was writing some code this morning for an uh, advent of code that's, that's kicked up, you know, this year. And um, I was, I was doing day one, I'm way behind, but uh, it was a, you, you got an input, uh, a, a list of numbers and you had to find which two numbers equaled some uh, particular thing uh, or sum to a particular number and then you had to multiply them so the naive way that I chose was you know a a loop with a nested loop just two four statements uh, looking for which two numbers equaled what I was what what I was after and for 20 minutes I sat there like debugging the thing wondering why it wasn't work working and eventually it dawned on me that I was I was uh, concatenating strings instead of doing addition but all of this, all of this, the list I was working with, like the first test input I had essentially was like 300 numbers. Like I I, I was not thinking at all. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me like, what, what are you doing? Like what you should be doing is testing two inputs and seeing how it goes. And and then uh, as soon as I narrowed it in, I thought, oh yeah, I'm just concatenating strings instead of adding. And and it was clear as day, but it was the smallest of functions. And I thought I was so cocky. I thought I had it and I started writing it and then I saw, I, I, By the end, I'm like, I don't think I can even call myself a programmer anymore.
1: (laughs) And I think that you have to have that experience on a regular basis to continue calling yourself a programmer where you've made the most obvious of mistakes and the computer has done exactly what you said and not even within the same zip code of what you wanted. That's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about what you were just saying, Matt, about you know, get reset hard and here's the inventory cost, but maybe it's actually the reverse. It's like, here's the savings that you get by me, not trying to code through the interruption and, and carry a, like a design inventory.
2: Ah. And by this, I
0: mean to segue into methodologies because we've touched on a few methodologies already, uh, or we've hinted at some things. I mean, a lot of the du jour methodologies are, are around scrum and, uh, a Scrum flavor of Agile, but more and more over the past few years, I've been learning about Lean software development and really enjoying the things there. Eliminating waste is one of those things, you know. Eliminating this uh, inventory—that's another thing that you know comes in with Lean practices that I think can really help make a team effective.
2: It's such a big topic for me and all of us. I, I know that so hard to unpack that I don't even know where, where to enter but i I want to talk the first thing that sticks out for me is whip limits and lean similar to what Dave said about a few fundamental practices that can improve a team I believe that merely observing your whip on a team can have a uh, can cause an improvement on that team and I think that comes right out of lean the, the way lean models in my mind is that the, there's this mecca where you're focused on one thing at a time all the time don't always get there try your best but in pursuit of that I, I, I've seen teams really improve but if, if you, you compare it all the way back and just say once a day or once a week can we just write down how many items we're working on right now and just do that for a month and then you can start having conversations like is it right that we're working on 20 things among three people or could there be some negative effects that are they're coming in but anyway all, all of that packages up into lean for me Um, in addition to a lot more, I tend to not like agile as much these days. It's, it's almost turning into a non-word for me. Uh, I don't love that that's the case, but, uh, and we could probably theorize why for a long time, but I, I do feel like it's becoming diluted and a lot of my attention has turned to things like lean.
1: I think, you know, when it comes to our overall theme of effective teams, a team that has delivered even fifty percent of their imagined work all the way done. If you've got ten things to do and you've done five of them to completion, that is more valuable, more efficacious than if you have delivered eighty percent of or hundred percent of them, eighty percent of the way done. Right? Like, what have you gotten done if you're only eighty percent on a whole bunch of tasks? Nothing. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to. You have to be done, and that means to me delivered to the customer, or at the very least deployed and being tested in the production environment behind some kind of advanced feature flagging in order for you to actually be getting any value of the work from the work that you've been doing. If you want to be effective, you get it done. It might be one thing, but if you only get one thing done, that is more effective than getting a hundred things partially done. Or a thousand things started. Well, I think
2: because if you if you're willing to uh, kind of be blunt about it, is because in the the latter case you didn't do anything. When when it's the case that half done is the same as not started at all, you didn't do anything. And so, regardless of how busy you felt, you know, you're spinning up those ten threads. It it in practice, to me, I agree with you, David. All seems more valuable to just pick one, do it, um, even if you don't know which one is the right one. Like just flip a coin and go. And as long as it's like a bite-sized increment of work, you're going to be okay. But I think the the key for me anyway, to what you're saying, Dave, is one thing at a time.
1: And all the way to completion. To me, that is the measure of an effective team, a team that is getting work finished. And so there's a lot of strategies for doing that. And I really like some of the ones you're talking about, Matt. I love measuring and limiting whip i love focusing on flow and the lead time to completion you know your average lead times for things i love pushing those things smaller to smaller and smaller and smaller batches coming out more and more and more rapidly because it gives you so many other advantages around like feedback and steering etc but as you were saying like if you haven't delivered anything there's no value you haven't learned you haven't given customers what they needed. No value has been created by having a collection of half done work.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It reminds me of there's a scene from Malcolm in the middle. It's been turned into a GIF where he's trying to do something like change a light bulb. And so he goes into the pantry to find light bulbs and the cupboard is all falling apart because the, the cupboard is broken. And so he's like, Oh, well, I need a screwdriver to fix the cupboard. And so he goes to look for the screwdriver and then it leads him off to something else. And, and now he's in the garage doing something. And, and the wife comes up and says, you know, I thought you were changing the light bulb. He's like, what do you think I'm doing? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, you're not, you're not changing the light bulb. Anybody can see that. Someone has to shave the ax. Getting those iterations down, I think is, is really important. And I wanted to say that I'm no big fan of Scrum. And I have some problems with Agile to the point that you were making, Matt, where it's not always clear what people are talking about. Some people are talking about Agile as, well, if you pay the consultant money, then they will sprinkle the Agile fairy dust on you. And then you, you will be knighted as Agile. There's some of that stuff that, that I really don't like. And yet scrum still has the beginnings of some of these things. It's like, if you're not doing, if you don't have a good process, then scrum is like your first iteration into lean. The problem is that people get stuck on scrum. They get stuck on certain ceremonies of like, well, we have to do stand up this way. Everybody has to stand up and they have to say, this is what I did yesterday. And this is what I'm doing today. And I have these blockers. And they miss the forest for the trees of what it was that they were trying to do. I mean, whether those are practices like you know, retrospectives or or improving their cadence of continuous delivery. I mean, that's really nothing more than saying, we're going to choose fewer planning poker points for iter- every iteration. Oh, and by the way, this iteration is only going to last as long as it takes to do this thing.
1: I think that it's an example of delivering in increments, right? You know, I worked on a team like I said before, we did rational unified process with annual releases. And we were like, that was the wrong answer. We, that is a thing. And it's the wrong answer for us. Swung the pendulum the other way into absolute anarchy and chaos with no defined releases, no process, nothing. And then coming back, like that was another iteration of trying things and trying process. And then I went to another job and we were doing one week time boxes and we were delivering whatever was done. I was like, well, but we won't have the big thing that people want, right? And to me, that was kind of my introduction into XP, which later became more like Scrum for me and different jobs. But there's a lot of things that happen that they're increments and they're improvements. And as long as we're still learning We'll eventually get to a place where things are working well enough for what our team needs to do, right? And that's why we you have to we have to be kind of stepping back and getting a little bit meta from time to time and looking at what's working and what's not, and replacing the things that are not working with experiments of things that might work better. And I don't expect that every team ends up doing lean software development with multiple daily releases in the same code base being developed by a mob. There's a lot of ways that people can get to a good enough state to deliver effectively, but you have to be thinking about it and retrospecting and improving your practice. And maybe the best thing for you to do is to focus on like getting better at your toolkit rather than getting better at your process, because maybe everyone on your team is just a little too novice. yeah. And maybe you've got a bunch of good people and you need to be focusing on like really hitting the gas and getting that process out of the way so that they can just deliver constantly.
2: Yeah, I, I can't underscore this enough for myself. I think that this ingredient makes or breaks projects and teams, this ability to introspect and to hold retrospectives and to... Like really honestly uh, assess the constraints that you are confronted with and and work within them and and constantly look back and see, you know, how can I improve this? How can I improve that? And I've taken this to the extreme before. I, I went out and saw Linda Rising give a talk on continuous retrospectives in 2000 something and I went back to the team that I was on and it was just such a fantastic team that I, you know, I proposed it and they said, yeah, let's try it. And they were all willing to do it. And so we we did this thing called continual retrospectives where we wrote a little Slack bot and every time you had a thought about something that could be improved or something that just wasn't working right, you would write it to that Slack bot and then on the screen on this massive TV... (laughs) We had in the team area, we essentially had a team Twitter feed and each post had a smiley face or a frowny face next to it, depending on like what sentiment was trying to be expressed. And you walked past that all the time and organically things would start coming where people are like, you know... I hear you, Matt. And I had a similar experience. I think we can fix it over here. Like, and those things have started happening and it was awesome. And the the thing I loved about it, like if you're willing to take retrospectives and say they're turned up to 11 is that it was just happening all the time, constantly. It was a part of the process. And I would do that on any team uh, if I could convince them.
0: So then we've covered a number of things that we've seen teams do that make them effective, right? Uh, We've covered things around having a clear vision, collaborating together, automating, uh, using TDD for design, there's methodologies and and introspection, but what conditions are required for these to work? I think Dave, you said earlier that all of these come with a context. It's sort of the caveat that it doesn't work hundred percent for everybody in every situation all the time. So What is required for
1: these to work? Or conversely, under what conditions do they not work? So when I think about that question, one of the things that comes to mind is like taking a survey of your context, your landscape, and knowing where you are. You know, I would would be very hesitant to take a team of a half dozen recent bootcamp graduates who had only ever shipped one website in Ruby on Rails and hand them a you know, a distributed system and say, okay, here we go. We're going to deliver this lean. We're going to set up our CI pipeline. We're going to deliver to production and give it to our customers three, four times a day. Let's go do this, right? I think that that team would have a very hard time executing at that particular speed. So, you know, one of the contexts for me is the knowledge of the members of the team. You can't apply some techniques until you've mastered others first. Yeah. So if you're on a team that's operating in chaos and you want to become more effective, you would do well to grab a book on XP installed or even you know your, your friendly neighborhood scrum master and say, help us bring some order to the chaos. And you might move beyond that. You might be working in a team that's so big you've outgrown any known process any known effective process for delivering software. And so you have to start coming up with different ways of structuring the work and the team and all of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, team dynamics is a a huge thing, right? Understanding like where you are as a team. And I think that that can manifest itself in a lot of ways. Like, are you remote or are you co-located or are you partially co-located? Those can make huge differences in how you work and which ways of working are effective. Are you synchronous or asynchronous or do you work for a company or is this like an open source project that you happen to be working on? Because those different environments change the nature of the work that you're doing. And it can oftentimes change which of these practices are effective. So like, I believe in collaboration. I really prefer mob programming as my kind of go-to way of delivering production code. But if I'm working on uh, some open source project that is done all asynchronously with pull requests as as the mechanism to get things uh, submitted into the the code base, then that pull request might be the closest thing to collaboration that I can get. And the feedback loops are gonna be long and the reviews might be harsh at times, but in that space, that might be the most collaboration that is really possible to achieve.
1: One of the things that I'm thinking about to get very specific, if I am sitting down to do a Kata or a little project that's just going to run on my laptop, I won't set up a continuous integration pipeline or a continuous delivery pipeline. I'm not going to go to that amount of effort for something that I'm the only person who's going to use it and I'm only going to use it a few times and then I'm going to throw it away. I will use TDD and I will initialize a Git repo because I don't want to burst your, your uh, I don't want to change your impressions of me, but I'm not necessarily going to do perfect code every time. I, uh, I have been known to occasionally code poorly and get reset hard and .NET test, or those are my go-tos for figuring out where I've screwed up.
0: I oh don't know. It sounds like he's human, Matt. We're going to have to find a new co host. I, I was going to say occasionally. No, I'm just
1: kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys know my, me and my code too well. You've have, you have worked on too many of my abandoned projects.
2: Okay. It's okay. I I, I too am ashamed of all the code I have written.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's really good.
0: I think we've all worked together enough to realize that one of the things that Will come out of our collaboration a lot is oh yeah you're right oh yeah no doubt you
1: are right. so yeah like i i have a hard time imagining a scenario where i wouldn't grab tdd as a tool i can see people who wouldn't i was one of those people who didn't first time i was introduced to tdd i was like aren't you just writing twice as much code to get the same value out and i didn't get it And it was years until somebody explained it to me in a way that I did understand. So that goes back again to lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. You know, sometimes I might not use TDE if I'm just replicating an existing algorithm. This is the algorithm. I'm going to do it this way. The test won't be just driving the design. I'll put in place a few, call them acceptance tests to make sure that I implemented the algorithm properly Hopefully there were examples that I could use. Maybe that's a thing where if you're not letting the tests drive the design, maybe you're not doing TDD. Maybe you're just writing good unit tests. Another area of
0: team dynamics that I think about, what kind of a team are you? Or are you even really a team, right? So if we're talking about effective teams and what processes they should use, you got to understand how does the team work together or do they work together? I like to think about it in terms of types of sports teams. Are you playing soccer or are you bowling? Because there are bowling teams and they do not look like soccer teams. Soccer teams, they're continuously working together. They're passing the ball back and forth. They're relying on each other to do particular specialties, but they're all on the field at the same time. The bowling team, everybody does the same thing sequentially. And they're rooting for each other, and they and they need each other. But it's it's a very different kind of environment as far as that collaboration goes. And a lot of the you know methodologies and and tools that you use are going to depend on that team context. How is the team willing to work?
2: One of the things that comes to my mind immediately is uh, maybe the more detached you are, the more um, documentation you need. You know, if you're an open, if you're writing an open source project, chances are, if it grows any legs, you're going to have to write like a contribution guide, um, maybe a a code of ethics around it or whatever, all the stuff that comes with a open source project that allows people to contribute, you know, as effectively as they can. And that stuff's not nearly as necessary when you're all working together every day. You know, we don't have to document the way we write our Git messages when the mob knows, you know, And, and even if an individual doesn't know when they join the mob, the mob will teach them you know, and they pick that stuff up. Anyway, one thing that's sticking out to me right now is the degree of documentation uh, changes as your uh, team dynamic changes.
0: Recently, I've been reading articles about Wardley maps. It talks about this idea of pioneers, settlers, and town planners being different phases of evolution of a product or, or concept. And they talk about this idea that pioneers are exploring unknown territory, And I think about that in terms of like startups, if you're in the very early phases of a startup, then maybe continuous deployment is not the thing that you need at that minute. Maybe a lot of regression tests is not what you need at that minute. Maybe what you need to do is to prove out your core concept and throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and to see what sticks. In which case there might be some things that you drop. There might be some practices that don't make as much sense in that space. If you don't know what the design is, what it is that you're going to be building, then it's going to be hard to to figure out what those acceptance tests are up front. And you might still use TDD to explore and to help you create a design for the classes that you're making. But at a macro level, it's going to be a lot harder to know what your end goal is. And so in those spaces, the overhead of some of these other practices might be so much that you, you don't get around to delivering value and, and your your company sunk because you are in this pioneers space. Uh, I think a lot of product development in the industry right now is in this kind of settlers space uh, to, to use this Wardley mapping metaphor. And they're working in this product space where a lot of lean principles, TDD, CI, continuous delivery, they get talked about a lot because they're working, they're effective, and we're seeing the business benefit of doing those kinds of things. But then you can move beyond product to more of a utility space or a, a consumption space where it's just taken for granted that that, that these are the way that things work. So you know, Amazon is a great example of bringing compute into a, a consumption or a utility space where you can just say, I would like to buy this much compute, please. Just like you would tell your you know, water company, I want this much water. You know, I, I'm going to buy water and you can do it where you couldn't do those things in the, in the past.
1: Or even just, I want as much water as I need until the end of the month and just bill me. Yeah, exactly. I want as much compute as I consume until the end of the month and just bill me for it. You couldn't do that in any of those other spaces. Right. And in this third area,
0: the people are town planners. They're working in this commodity space where they're probably the least tolerant of failure, right? So in in the product space, you're you're talking about continuous delivery and you hear stories about things like, oh yeah, we fixed, we created a bug as part of our deploy and we rolled forward or we rolled back and it fixed it and we had a really quick mean time to recovery. But unfortunately when you're in the utility space, people are much less accepting of that. Even if it's you know small, small things that are broken because they're depending on it to be this really well understood problem. It just needs to work. And so I'm not sure, but I think that those are kind of some extremes where a lot of the things we talk about tend to be in this product space. But if you're a pioneer trying something that's never been done before, or if you're a town planner doing something that literally everyone has done before, but but you're doing it as a utility, then maybe some of these practices change and you have to think differently about what makes an effective team at that point.
1: One of the things that that makes me think of is in Principles of Product Development Flow, Don talks about how there are times when you have learned enough and you're delivering the thing and it's just working and maybe you want to start doing bigger batch sizes to get a different kind of economy around your change sets because you're not you're not looking for fast feedback you're looking for slow incremental improvement of a thing you're in that commodity space right you're no longer discovering a product and i mean when i first read that the first probably a couple of times i read that it was really hard for me to get my mind around because i've been working for so long on the boundary between pioneers and settlers where you you've discovered where there is an opportunity and you're just starting to settle that territory and build that first real product and having spent so much time there looking at at the town planners who are like well we can save four percent on our Annual copper budget. If we route the lines like this instead of that, I'm like, who cares? Just build more and make like, grow the top line, and don't worry about the bottom line, <laughs> you know. But there are people who are in a space where they have to be working on the bottom line. They have to be worrying about that meantime between failures instead of that meantime to recovery. Right. Under it all goes back to the same problem at the beginning, right? You cannot ignore your context. Understand your landscape understand your context, and pick your practices, pick your tools in alignment with where you are. And so that that becomes one of the responsibilities of a team that is trying to be effective is that they have a big enough toolbox and understand enough of the options that they can pick the appropriate ones for the context they're working in.
0: And, And luckily, there is a lot of overlap. There are some things like testing that just, they hold true. If you're gonna write code, you should test it because you are a human, you are going to make mistakes and testing is a great way, TDD especially is a great way to figure out very quickly that you made a mistake. Things like introspection, like like Matt was talking about. I think that there's there's a way to introspect in every effective team. What you're working on might be different, right? So, some teams might be reflecting on it. Well, how can we do our continuous delivery better? And some other team is reflecting on, well, how can we, you know, uh, reduce our spend in your hosting environment or something like that? Because they're moving more towards, you know, the commodity end, whereas the other one is more exploring the space. But they're both reflecting, they're both thinking about what was it that we needed to do. I think automation tends to be one that always makes sense. And so there's, there's these different flavors of practices that all fit into these different categories of things that you're gonna have to do to be effective. It's gonna look different, especially at the surface level for each one of these different teams, but the principles behind it tend to stay pretty steady. One last topic I wanted to cover here is effective architecture. So as an architect myself, I think about this a lot in terms of what makes teams effective. And when you have a good architecture, then it makes it easier for teams to be effective. That goes both ways for a team. The team has to work in some kind of space. If there are multiple teams, that are working together. And the architecture of that system can dramatically impact whether the team is effective or not. But then also the architecture of what the team is building can make a huge difference on whether they're effective or not. The other thing that architecture provides is options for the business so that a business can pivot as necessary. If your architecture is too brittle, then it's really hard for you to stay effective as a team because when requirements change, and they always do, when the business landscape shifts, it always does. When the unexpected suddenly happens and now it's COVID time and everybody is working from home and what even happened to the world? You want to have an architecture that helps you so that you can pivot. And some of the things that we talked about previously feed into that, like how the team works, how they design their code, how they reflect on it, definitely drives towards better code and better architectures. But I think that there's a really important aspect of understanding the system that you're in if you want it to be an effective team because you can hamstring them so quickly by changing the rules or, or making an environment where they're unable to do their job.
2: Yeah. The, you know, there's, I agree. There's something you said, Ellen, and there that really sticks out to me responding to the changing needs of the business. When you do that as an architect, I believe that this is a really undervalued or maybe under discussed skill. You need to be paying attention to the way the, the, business pivots are affecting your system because they're telling you where your points of volatility are. And that tells you maybe where at least you should consider investing in, you know, maybe some decoupling strategies or some indirection strategies to absorb those kinds of changes. Um, and I just don't, I feel like things like that don't get talked about enough. I, we, we maybe talk about it more at the code level, but there's a systemic side to it too, you know, where maybe you should change from a microservices architecture to a microkernel if A, B, and C are true. But there is something to be said for that examination of over time, how is, how what sort of trends are happening in the business pivots as they relate to the, the changes I'm required to make? And is it actually confirming for me that my system design is working, or maybe it's telling me that one of my, you know, components of my system design is off because one of the, the things to change is super hard or whatever. I don't know, but this, this, this idea you put forward is really it's clicking with me right now.
0: <laughs> and it also teaches you the converse sometimes too, where look, after all of these changes, this thing never changed. So let's not invest in making it super flexible Yes, because that's not That's apparently not an area where we're going to need flexibility.
2: I love that. You know, and I think that this all kind of maybe buttons back up to our original topic. An architecture that absorbs change gracefully tends to make it easier for teams to be effective. And there's lots of things that I think contribute to an effective team uh, the organization design the design of the team the personalities on the team there's we can go on and on but one of the things high on that list i believe is the system they're working within some of that's people some of that's technical and um, i don't know if we're even separating them in this case when we're talking about how architecture plays into it but um, you can definitely take a great team put them in a poor architecture either technical or people and watch them atrophy you know i i, I do believe that can happen
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Well, that brings us to the end of our topic and our episode for today about effective teams. So we will go ahead and recommend that you join up with a community of professionals by attending a software crafters group or meetup near you. Many of them have gone virtual in 2020 and the Utah Software Craftsmanship Group at utahsc.org meets on the first Wednesday of each month and currently their meetings are virtual. Maybe we will see you there.